Good morning. Now, before I came up here this morning, my mom made sure to remind me, now, John, if you make a mistake, don't bring attention to it, and no one will know, which means I'm definitely not going to bring attention to the fact that I forgot to think of an introduction joke. <laughs> definitely not. That's just not going to happen. So, how did you guys sleep last night? I don't know, man. I slept really well. It feels like I got a whole extra hour or something. It's, it's pretty great. But uh, my name, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Horning, and until the last Wednesday of last month, I was the youth director here at Foothills Church. But that has now been passed along to Justin Worth, which I'm very excited about. I actually don't see where he is in the room. He's probably serving somewhere, like the baller that he is. So I am no longer a part of youth staff, but I do get one more message to share with you guys, and I love teaching through Old Testament historical narrative. And I'm very excited that I'm going to get you the cliche of all cliche, Old Testament historical narratives. Because today we're talking about David and Goliath. So while you guys are turning to 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's some things before this that you need to be aware of to fully appreciate what's happening in this chapter. If you want to go to the next slide, I want to talk to you guys about the story of King Saul. Because one of the main things that's going to be happening in this chapter is a comparison between the character of King Saul and the character of King David. So in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, we're introduced to Saul. Well, we're introduced a little bit earlier. But in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is anointed by Samuel and he's made king of Israel. Israel comes to Samuel and he says, we want a king who can go out before us and fight our battles. And the issue is that they wanted a king so that they could look like the other nations. Israel wanted a king of appearances, so God gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them a king of appearances. And it says, they ran and took him from there because King Saul was hiding behind the baggage. Great start. And they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. If you've ever heard head and shoulders above the rest, this is where that's from. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So Saul comes on stage, and the first thing that you know about him is that he seems, from appearances, like a good pick. This guy is imposing, this guy is large, this guy is attractive, and Israel is all about it. But we're about to see what the king of appearances turns into, even just a little bit later. Because if you want to go to the next slide, 1 Samuel 13. Saul is facing the Philistines in battle, and before they go into battle, they're supposed to offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is supposed to be offered by Samuel. But as they're waiting for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice, all of Saul's army starts running away. And so Saul is stuck between a rock and a hard place, and he's thinking, how am I going to fight against the Philistines if I don't have an army behind me? Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifice, so I'm just going to do it. And so he offers the sacrifice, and right after he offers the sacrifice, Samuel shows up, and he says this. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the Lord commanded you. So we've learned something about Saul's characterization. He does not have faith in God's ability to deliver, and that lack of faith leads into disobedience. 
The second thing that we're getting is this anticipation of someone who's coming. This anticipation of someone else who is a man after God's own heart. Now, I do need to comment on that. When we talk about someone's heart, a person's heart is the seat of their desires. When you're talking about what someone's heart is after, you're talking about what they want. And that's pretty closely tied to emotions. If you get what you want, makes you happy. If you don't get what you want, makes you sad or angry. But at the base of that is, what do you want? And so when God is saying, I have sought after someone after my own heart, God is saying, I have found someone who wants the things that I want. And so we have this anticipation. We haven't met who this person is. We don't know who they're going to be. But all of a sudden, we know someone's coming who has this characterization. So if you want to go to the next slide, to 1 Samuel 15, this is the second situation where that person is foreshadowed, where Saul is sent by God to exterminate the Amalekites. And I'm not going to go into the details behind that, but God gives Saul the instruction to kill every man, woman, and child, and to kill every animal, to keep nothing for himself. And so Saul, he goes in, and he has victory over the Amalekites, but he leaves King Agag alive against God's orders, and Saul and the army, they preserve every animal that they wanted. So all of the good animals, they kept those alive for themselves, and everything that they didn't really want well, they killed that. Exactly not what God told them to do. And then after Saul leaves from that victory, he builds a monument to himself. And when Samuel comes to him and he confronts him, Saul is non-repentant. And so we're learning a bit more about Saul's characterization. In addition to being faithless and being disobedient, Saul is also in it for his own honor, and he's in it for his own greedy gains. And when confronted, Saul is not repentant. And again, Samuel responds to that situation by saying this. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So two chapters later, we have another situation where Saul's character is showcased and we are given the expectation of someone coming in the future who is better. And when you come into 1 Samuel 16, that is where you meet this person. And in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes and he anoints David as king over Israel, even though David is not appointed as king yet. And it said uh, that the spirit of God leaves Saul and it comes on to David. And it says that Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Here's why I'm telling you this. Sometimes there can be a tendency to when you read a biblical story, you take the protagonist of that story and you say, whatever this protagonist does, that is a model for us to follow. Everything he did was definitely the right thing. You know, you should be like Gideon and test God and also probably lead Israel into idolatry by having them worship an ephod, right? No. That would definitely make for a very interesting David and Bathsheba sermon, if that's how that worked. Um, but in this situation, David has been pre-characterized as a man after God's own heart, who is better than Saul, and who has the Spirit of God upon him. And so in 1 Samuel 17, this is your introduction to what does it look like for a person to have a heart after God's heart, to be better than Saul, and to have the Spirit of God upon him. So in this case, the biblical protagonist is kind of a role model that we're supposed to be learning from. And then, of course, we'll get to my favorite part of the story at the end. But if we go to the next slide, we're going to have this up here. 
And like I told you, in 1 Samuel 17, there's a lot of comparison happening between the previous characterization of Saul and the current characterization of David. So I'm going to leave that list up there. And as we go, we are going to see in every area of Saul's character, what was David's character like? And that is the context that you need to come into 1 Samuel 17. So with that, we'll start reading. And it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Demim. Now, a better preacher would have taken pictures of, like, the hills and the valleys that are being described in that verse and shown them to you. But we don't have the time, and you can understand the story perfectly fine without it. So, moving on. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Allah and drew up in a battle line against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, for those of you who don't know, a cubit is about a foot and a half, and a span is about half a cubit. So when it says six cubits and a span, that is about nine feet and nine inches. Now, in case you're not used to imagining a person who is nine feet, nine inches, I have something for you. And I'm hoping this is helpful. But I took the liberty of making something. We're going to hope that I don't break anything. So I'm definitely not drawing attention to the fact that I knocked the light. We're not doing that at all. But... This is going to be our little stand-in Goliath. And this is about nine feet, nine inches tall, and it's based on my proportions. So those two little sticks coming out the side, those are not arms. That's how far my shoulders are apart if I were scaled up to this size. Just in case Julia was wondering what I look like a bit taller and a bit, you know, skinnier. Um, but this is what we're talking about when we say Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. Like, imagine that this isn't made out of PVC, but this is actually a person. And that this person is walking out on a battlefield, taunting an entire army. You can see why that might be a little bit imposing. And we actually learn a bit more about him. It's not just that he's that tall, but he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, I don't know about you, but I just didn't know off the top of my head what a shekel weighs. So the conversion for that is that is about 125 pounds. So Goliath is not some super tall, lanky, scrawny guy who just happens to be able to win the height contest. Goliath is a beast. We're talking 125 pounds of armor, and then if you go on, it says that his shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and that the head of it was, I think, 600 shekels of iron, 600 shekels of iron, and that is about 15 pounds. So Goliath isn't just tall, he is burly, and he is the best warrior that the Philistines have to offer. And we know that because of the next couple verses. And in verse 8, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then we, sorry, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
So after that, in verse 11, and when Saul and all in Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath is terrifying. The Philistines have their best soldier coming forward. This is someone who would have been a veteran at this point. And so not only does he have all of that size behind him, but he knows exactly what to do with it. And so you can imagine that this taunting your army might be just a little bit scary, and no one necessarily wants to be the one who draws that short straw. But we've also seen Saul's characterization confirmed. As we already know, Saul is a coward. And Saul is, again, head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. He was appointed as king to fight Israel's battles before them, and when he hears someone defying the ranks of Israel... Israel as a nation represented God in the world, and when you insulted Israel, by proxy, you were insulting the God they represented. And so Goliath comes out, he's insulting God necessarily, and when Saul hears it, he's not motivated by God's honor. He's not motivated to go out there and do something about it. He doesn't trust God's ability to deliver him from the hand of Goliath. And quite frankly, we know that even if he did beat Goliath, he would just make another monument to himself. So... Saul is confirming his characterization as he shakes in fear over something that should be enraging him. But in verse 12, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons, and in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Aminadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, but the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now, we have a visual insert for Goliath. And real quick, Alex Sobrito, do you want to come up here? So you can give him a hand. So here's why I'm taking Alex Sobrito and having him stand up here. Um, Based on the fact that David is the youngest of eight sons, and we know that three of his sons are following Saul, and the other three are not, uh, the age to go to war in Israel was about 20 years old. And there's a number of places that you can check that, but Numbers chapter 1 is one of them. So the fact that three of Saul's, sorry, three of David's brothers are above 20, and the fact that Israelite women cranked out babies like their lives depended on it, you can assume that their ages are about 20, 21, and 22. And then the next three are going to be about 19, 18, 17. And if we account for, you know, maybe a span of time, maybe they took more than a year to get a baby out, or maybe there's some daughters in there that we aren't aware of, that places David as about 13 to 16 years old. Additionally, David was a shepherd boy and an errand boy. That means that he's doing labor and he's running around, so he's going to be fit, and he's not necessarily going to be huge, but that's very convenient because, Alex, how old are you? 15 years old. For those of you who don't know, Alex was playing basketball until recently, so he's pretty fit. You can tell that by looking at him. And so he's going to be about the size, about the build, about the height that David would have been or a bit shorter, or David would have been a bit shorter. And on top of all of that, he's single. <laughs> I'm glad you guys thought that was funny, because you probably thought that was funnier than his parents did. <laughs> but I just want you to have this rough image. Like, imagine a person about that size, and this is the person, or maybe a bit smaller, that's going to be going and fighting that. 
and having that visual image in your mind is going to be very helpful as we read the rest of this story. But thank you for being a good sport. You can have back down. <laughs> we still friends? <laughs> We're good? All right. So uh, let me just find my place again. Forty days and forty nights, the Philistine came forward and took his stand in the morning and the evening. So we've seen how Saul responded to this situation, namely by doing nothing. And now we're going to be seeing what David does in this situation. And, the, and Jesse said to David his son, Take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. And now Saul and all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment, the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, which I love that they preserved this, but that entire thing of like all this lead up about Goliath and then his name, yeah, he's intimidating. Goliath, by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So we are leading into this. Again, we know already, David is a man after God's own heart. That means David cares about the things God cares about. David is better than Saul. And David has the spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. What's he going to do? And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his house, his father's house, free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So something that you should note about this, if you want to go to the next slide, we see the first part of David's characterization in contrast with Saul. You'll notice that David is inquiring about the reward of what's going to happen if someone kills this Philistine. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is that even if David killed the Philistine, he wouldn't cash in those rewards. Knock, knock, nudge, nudge, foreshadowing. And jokes aside, David does eventually kill Goliath. I'm assuming you guys know how the story ends. And he doesn't cash in those rewards. He doesn't get the money. He does not marry one of Saul's daughters. And in fact, in 1 Samuel 18, the next chapter, where David does end up marrying one of Saul's daughters, it's in a completely unrelated circumstance, and David actively tries to not let Saul, uh, not let Saul have him marry his daughter. And one of the reasons he cites for it is that David is a poor man. So he didn't take the daughter, and he didn't take the riches. So where Saul is motivated by his own greed, you see David being characterized in the course of this story as not being motivated by his own greed. So then why is he asking about the reward for killing the Philistine? Well, the Philistine has been coming out for 40 days and taunting the armies of God. And so going through David's mind is going to be, what is Saul doing about this? 
I know that this is probably not the first time he's come up about this. Um, why is he still able to come out and say these things in front of Israel? What is Saul doing to deal with this problem if he's not doing it himself? Is there at least a reward posted? And there is. But you can't use money if you're dead. So no one's taking him up on that. And so we see that difference in their characterization. And now, in verse 28... Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now here's what's really, really funny about that. What does God think about David's heart? Think it's a good thing, or do you think David's heart is doing good or doing bad before God? Good. Because that's exactly what God said in the previous chapters. So Eliab has a very different perspective on David than God does. And that's despite the fact that Eliab, just last chapter, watched David get anointed as king. Eliab got passed over. David got anointed. And yet Eliab is apparently very confident that he knows David better than God does. I would not advise being in that position in your life. (laughs) But here's the thing. We said that one of the main things about Saul's characterization was his appearances. If you want to go to the next slide, this is another thing that we're learning about David's appearances. Even the people in David's own family are not impressed by him. There is nothing about David that's going to make someone think, oh yes, this is the one that I want to be my king. And yet, God picked him anyway. So in the one thing that Saul had on David, it was his appearances. And one of the things that you're going to be learning as we read this story is that those appearances don't matter. So we continue. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him to another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him as before. And then in verse 31, and when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David's there, day one. He doesn't have any armor. He's not part of the uh, soldiers. It's about, you know, seven to five years until David even gets to go out to war. And David's saying, hey man, I'll kill that giant that giant that you're scared of, that giant that all of them are scared of. And he didn't have that venomous undertone in what he was saying, but just like, I'm going to add that in. Um, The thing that you were too scared to deal with, I'm a little kid. I'll deal with it. And then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him because you are but a youth, but he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now, there's something the ESV does very well with that section. David is not saying there was this one time that a lion came and there was this one time that a bear came. David is saying whenever a lion or a bear came, I went out and killed them, which implies that maybe this has only happened once. More likely, this has been happening uh, at least several times. So David, this little kid, once again, uh, he goes out to a bear and a lion, and his strategy for killing it is to grab its beard and shank it. Lions and bears have paws. I would be afraid to do that. But David, this little kid, is overpowering bears and lions on the regular basis 
at least regular enough to like classify as a class of activities that happens. And he comes to Saul and he says, in the same way that I've done that, in verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And we're going to go to the next slide. But this is the next thing that you should note about David. We said that David is a man after God's own heart and that that means that David wants what God wants. The reason that David wants to kill Goliath is not to make himself look good. It's not to get the reward. It's not any of those things. It's this person is insulting God and that matters to me. In the same way that Saul was disobedient to do the things that God specifically told him to do, God didn't have to tell David to fight Goliath. David heard someone reviling the person that mattered to him more than anyone else, and he said, you don't need to tell me what to do. Throw me in, coach. I'll fight this Philistine. David didn't need the instruction because he already wanted what God wanted, and that led into his actions. But it's not just that David wanted what God wanted. If you go to the next slide again, verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What is enabling David? Faith. David has faith in God's ability to deliver, and that is what is allowing him to fuel his obedience. If you've ever met someone that they only obey the Bible insofar as it makes sense to them, or they only believe the Bible, what the Bible says insofar as it makes sense to them. That is someone who is not learning this lesson. David's not looking at Goliath and calculating out his odds. It's like, okay, can I take this guy? What do I need to do? Maybe I can catch him unaware, sneak up behind him, and like reach as far as I can and touch his tailbone. David is not calculating his odds. He's not thinking, what does it mean for me to be successful in this circumstance? He's thinking, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to believe the things that God has demonstrated, and then... I'm going to do what God wants me to do. That's the same attitude that when Daniel and his friends are being oppressed in the book of Daniel in Babylon, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God can deliver us from the fire of the furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. That is the same fire, that is the same passion that defined another teenager. And so David is motivated by the right things. He has faith in God's ability to provide, and that is what a man after God's own heart who is filled by the Spirit looks like. And that should be an inspiring thing to us. And so Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And then verse 38, And then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And so again, there's a massive emphasis on appearances in this section. Goliath, decked out in armor, a giant, a war veteran. Uh, he's not expecting a little kid dressed in his shepherd's clothes with a staff and a sling to walk out to meet him. That would be humiliating. It would be insulting, in fact. And one thing that's a note about the sling, slings are weapons of war, and it's not like bringing a gun to a knife fight. And there are people that would like to have you believe that. That is not the case. Goliath is wearing a helmet, 
Goliath has fought in battles. Goliath has had to fight against slings. He's not worried about them. But a sling is a weapon. So David is bringing a weapon, and yet it is the least conspicuous and least impressive weapon that he probably could have brought. And so you're watching this little teenager walk out to a giant, and he looks basically unarmed. And you're like, okay, that's got to be a joke. And yet, that's exactly what David walks out with. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine... And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Which this is interesting to me. So I did a word study on that word for handsome, because it's used of David twice in the last two chapters. This is one of them. And in both situations, it's actually used to deride him. So that word is essentially the word for pretty. It's used 42 times in the Old Testament, and 30 of those times it's used about a person. Of those 30 times, it's used of a woman 25 times. For example, there were no daughter, there were no women in the land as beautiful as Job's daughters. That's this word. In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, when it says that Esther was the most beautiful of the bunch, that's this word. So when it says that David was handsome in appearance, it's essentially calling him a pretty boy. And that's not always a bad thing. This is also used of a man in Song of Solomon, where the bride is referring to the bridegroom. And the bride uh, is referred to using this word far more often than the bridegroom is, but it's not necessarily in a bad way. And I mean, hey, if you're a lady out there and you want to call your husband pretty, you do that. That is not necessarily a bad thing. But you can imagine that a battle-hardened veteran watching a pretty boy come out to uh, have a fight with him, that's not necessarily an impressive thing. Here's why I'm telling you that. We talked about how Saul, in his appearances, seemed like he was well fit to the job. Saul was tall. Saul was imposing. Exactly what David isn't. David is short. David is young. And David's pretty. So, in other words, if you went to anyone in Israel and you said, pick the person that would be a good king to go out and fight your battles, they would pick literally anyone other than David. Every feature that David has is entirely incongruous with the task that God has given him, except for one. David is faithful before God, and God doesn't actually care about the other things. God doesn't need your strength to accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need David's strength. God doesn't need Saul's appearances. And God uses who he wants to do what he wants. And so God honors the people who are faithful because that's what he cares about. And so David, despite being completely ill-fit for the task God has given him, is doing it anyway. And God actually praises him for that. So, moving on. And he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome. Did you guys know what ruddy means? I did not know what ruddy means. Ruddy means having a red, youthful complexion. So like when women put makeup on and they put some red on their cheeks, that's ruddy. I didn't know that. I learned something today, and I feel like I understand women just that much better. So for anyone else, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to bring your attention to that one either. But, um, <laughs> but I learned something. I'm sharing it with you. All right, verse 43. And then the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, whom you have defied. This entire story is essentially an object lesson on the fact that God does not need to provide in the way that people provide for themselves. And yet, David also says it explicitly. So the same thing that God is working out this situation to demonstrate to the people who are watching, David not only already understands that, but he sees the situation before, as it is before it even goes down. Like, David is taunting Goliath, and he says further on, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Now, when it says he will give you into our hand, that's not what it says. It says, he has given you into our hand. David is sure of this. And before the battle is even won, David is already learning the lessons from it that God is intending to teach. David is a man after God's own heart, and he's following with the things that God is already teaching. And that brings us to the last part of the slide, which is that David trusts, uh, sorry, that David desires God's desires. He wants God honored, that last one. David wants God honored. And he even before having the battle, it's super easy after you hit the home run to be like, oh. But I want to see the dude who like walks out to home base and he does this before swinging. That's what David is doing. He's already thanking God for the victory that hasn't even occurred yet because he has complete faith in God's ability to provide and he already understands what God wants from this circumstance. And so we continue. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David, so David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they ran away. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. And so, all of the things that, we, that David at least knew was going to happen, happen in short order. And so, if you guys remember my Ruth message, I told you that the reason I love biblical historical narrative so much is because in every situation, it's a character study on God. You're looking at how God has functioned in history, you're looking at how he's acted in different contexts, and God's character doesn't change. And so, I want to quickly go through that story again, briefly, from God's perspective. Because if you're God sitting up in heaven, and then all of a sudden this little Philistine... little to God, and all of a sudden this little Philistine comes out and he starts uh, insulting your people and by proxy insulting you. Well, 
if you've read your Bible up to this point, then you remember Genesis chapters 6 through 9 where God flooded the entire world for being disobedient and wicked. You remember Genesis 19 where God burned Sodom and Gomorrah for similar issues. You remember all of the ways that God provided for and disciplined Israel throughout the wilderness wanderings. You remember God helping Joshua and Israel conquer Canaan in some pretty interesting ways during the campaign of Canaan. And so you also remember Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And you also remember Leviticus chapter 24, where a man, while fighting in the field, curses God's name, and so God has Israel stone him to death. And you're thinking about all of those things where God conquers who he wants, how he wants, and God is very much motivated by his own honor. And you already know how that story is going to end as soon as Goliath starts ripping into God. But the issue is God's not going to use Saul because Saul's too much of a coward to trust God to deliver him anyway. And even if God did deliver Saul, he's going to take the credit for himself. So instead, uh, God looks around Israel and he picks, oh, there's... There's a scrawny little kid, and I know that he'll give me credit, and even if he didn't give me credit, anyone watching would know that I was the one who did it, but also, he's going to give me credit, so I'm going to let him be the one who gives me that victory, and then he sends this little shepherd boy out in front of the army of the Philistines, and this little shepherd boy in his little shepherd clothes stands in front of a hardened, giant, armored war veteran and kills him almost immediately, and then Israel goes and slaughters the armies of the Philistines. And what you learn from that, Israel has learned, David has learned, the Philistines have learned that God is motivated by his own honor, and God is able to deliver whom he delivers. And so how are we supposed to learn from that? Because we aren't in the same context that David was in. Us being people after God's own heart, us being filled by the Spirit, doesn't mean going out and killing a giant. That's not our battlefield anymore. But this is going to help you be very much informed by the end of Matthew. When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and that last bit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you read a story like David and Goliath, you learn a little bit about what it means for God to be with you even to the end of the age. And so in David's circumstance, being motivated by God's interest in the world and being faithful, having faith, I should say, in God's ability to deliver you, for us, that means living our lives before God well. That means slaying sin in your own life, actually realizing that God cares about your holiness. That means helping the Christians that are around you to grow because God cares about your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means going out and evangelizing the lost because God cares about the souls of people in this world. Our battlefield is not out in a valley somewhere fighting a giant. David's mission in his context was to kill people. But our mission, in our context, is to save people. And so we don't have the same battle to fight, but we have the exact same means to victory. It's God. So with that, let's bow our heads, let's pray it out, and finish the service. 
Lord, thank you for stories like the story of David and Goliath. Thank, thank you for situations where you demonstrate your power, where you demonstrate your honor, where you demonstrate the things that you care about. And thank you that you provide us with role models like David, where we can see how those might work themselves out in specific contexts. I pray that you would help us to be like David, people who care about the things that you care about, people who are filled by your spirit and that pursue your mission in the world. And Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. Amen.